Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. My guest this week is legendary guitarist Warren Haynes of the Almond Brothers, the dead and government mule. When he became part of the Almonds, he had the surreal experience of joining his favorite band, and I've been a fan of his music my entire adult life. Warren and I discussed the Almond Brothers shows at Madison Square Garden just days before the COVID shutdown, and what he's working on with touring life on hold. We also talk about Christmas Jam, the annual benefit concert Warren hosts in his native Asheville, where he's raised millions of dollars for Habitat for Humanity. Finally, we turn to the upcoming election, Warren's work with Headcount, and why he believes voting should be mandatory. It was an honor to speak with Warren, and I hope you enjoy the show. Warren Haynes, welcome to the Politics of Truth. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. Warren, you played one of the last concerts at Madison Square Garden, maybe the final concert before the COVID shutdown. In retrospect, what stands out to you about that gig? Well, the days leading up to it, it was getting more and more obvious that things were getting a little uh, menacing on the COVID front. And by the time show day rolled around, we were all wondering, are we going to do this? Are we going to get shut down? And it was such an emotional moment for us anyway, playing together for the first time since 2014 and celebrating the, the 50th anniversary of, of the Allman Brothers legacy. It was just surreal. I, I look back at it now, it was, it's like being in some, some sort of dream bubble or something. And then the next day is when stuff really started going crazy. And uh, I'm thankful that we were able to do the show but on the other hand, I, I, I hope that people didn't put their health at risk because of it, you know. Yeah. What, what have you been doing since, other than like all of us parenting, right? Uh, our parenting muscles are in good shape right now, all of us. I could, I could probably say for you as well. Wh what else have you been doing? Well, I've done a few uh, virtual things as far as, uh, you know, a few songs here and there. I did something for Rolling Stone. I did st something for Little Kids Rock. Uh, and a couple of the festivals that we were supposed to be part of, I presented some virtual uh, substitute, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And I mostly just been writing more than I have in, in years and years and years, because this is the most time I've gone without doing a gig, probably since I was a teenager. Wow. And that was at least 10 years ago. <laughs> That's right. Same thing for the Avit camp. We've been on the road for 20 years, and this is the longest break we've ever had. And that seems to be the consensus with everybody. You know, um, when and where do we get back to work and put our big toe in the water and see what happens? Uh, which I, I heard you guys did something just recently, right? We did this weekend. Saturday, we played at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And it was 1,500 cars there in the infield. 
it went very well. It was very well executed. And that was the big thing. Everybody behaved very well. They were either in or on their vehicles and they got in and got out smoothly. Uh, Social distancing was in full effect. We feel real confident that it was a safe event. We feel really good about that. And like I said, our, our, our fans so blessed to have just a group of people who are free spirits, but rule followers. So, so they really were uh, a lot of masks, a lot of uh, real conscientious behavior, but it worked out for the concessions people. It worked out for our crew. It, we got to get out and play it, very emotional. You know, the first few songs I was holding back tears because, you know, like you, I didn't know when's this going to happen again? What is the, is the business going to look like? But I think we're holding our breath, but I think we pulled it off. And we all had a great time. So um, that's awesome. Well, uh, you you got to start somewhere, you know, and, and, you know, we're all in this thing together, but we're all thinking the same thing is, you know, nobody wants to be the guinea pig. Nobody wants to put themselves or their audience at risk. But at the same time, there is a way to do it. Uh, we just have to be smart about it and, and pay attention to everything that we can learn from, you know. So what are you thinking? I mean, do you have something in mind? Are you? Is there, I don't expect you to reveal something here. Is there something in the works for you or Government Mule or, or any of your related projects? Well, actually, uh, I'm going to do two shows, uh, September 12th and 13th, with Danny Lewis from Government Mule. I'll do... I'll do about half the show by myself, and then Danny will join me for the other half. Uh, they're at a place in Connecticut called South Farm in, in Morris, Connecticut, and I know several people that have done it. Uh, Grace Potter did it recently, and I, I just spoke to her a couple of days ago, and she did 11 shows, social distance shows, and she said that was her favorite one. They sell pods, and it's a minimum of two. People are separated. It's very stringent, kind of like you were talking about with you guys' show. And it's the first one that I've felt confident that was the right way to go. We're going to do those two shows. And actually, I think they both sold out really quick. So we're going to do maybe three more all in the same venue. And and just uh, because it's close to my house, I can drive, get in my car, drive there and come home. It's funny that we're thinking that way, you know, about how to perform. But, you know, it, it's very obvious that we have to do this. We have to be extremely cautious about it. Uh, I'm excited to do it, but I'm I'm a little apprehensive. But, you know, like we say, it's got to, got to start sometime. So I, I got to get myself uh, psyched up for it. But I'm sure between now and then uh, I'm going to be chomping at the bit. Well, I'll tell you, it is an incredible feeling, whether it's people in automobiles or you're playing to cars, it still feels good to be up there playing, I got to say. So let's talk about this, like, because this is candidly, this is the world I live in in my head with the fears of what happens. You know, we have shows booked from next March. You know, there's there's an assumption that by next March, everything's back to pre-March of 2019. Personally, I sure hope, but I kind of think best case scenario, maybe next August. But I have a special needs, medically fragile child. You know, I'm 49 years old, asthmatic. I don't know how I feel about bus life at this point. What's the business look like in your mind? Because these are my, like, the headspace I live in personally. I can't speak for anyone else. What about you? What are your thoughts of uh, the music industry post-COVID? 
Well, funny you mentioned the bus thing. I feel that way about planes in the way that I'm in no hurry to get on an airplane. And uh, I know that when we had a conference call recently with all the members of Government Mule, one of the things that all of us agreed on was nobody wants to get on a plane. And we have two in New York and two in L.A. So in order to do anything, somebody's got to get on an airplane or take a really long bus ride. <laughs> so that kind of uh, put a, a damper on thoughts that, that we probably probably should be very cautious about anyway. The bus thing, I, I understand your read on it. And my wife's uh, got uh, immune deficiencies and, and asthma as well. And, and uh, I'm no spring chicken. We have to think that way. But I, I thought that uh, at least on a bus, it's a controlled environment. One of the things that concerns me is circulated air. You know, we're all used to being on the bus and, and turning up the air conditioning. Maybe it goes back to the old days when they didn't have air conditioning. You just open all the windows. And, <laughs> but it's something to be concerned about all the way around. The, the catering thing is funny. In the last couple of years, I've thought more about how, you know, maybe we just take a grill on the road and grill ourselves or or take someone who we trust to cook uh, or something like that. The big problem is people in large gatherings. So just like in schools or, or any other situation, we're going to have to rethink how everybody eats lunch and dinner and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think more importantly, the concept of the audience is going to be such a, a wild card. And I know you guys had good luck with, with your show recently. You know, your audience, our audience, both pretty uh, attentive and, and conscientious, I think. But I do worry about audiences, and uh, especially in some situations, just completely abandoning the principles of, of this whole thing and, and uh, putting people at risk. It's going to be up to everybody, the promoters, the, the venues, the, the bands, the crews. Everybody's got to work on it together. And, and uh, it's going to be a, a slow, tedious process. And, and I hope you're right. I hope by August things are normal. But, uh, you know, I don't think we can rush any expectations. A lot of the things that you've done here in the, in the COVID environment, they've been benefits, right? They've been for charities. You know, my daughter goes to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which was started by Danny Thomas. I think what you did with the Christmas Jam, you are the Danny Thomas of the music industry, and he should be a saint, in my opinion. So uh, let's talk about Christmas Jam and the history of it and how it all began, because it is the model for musical philanthropy. So I just hey, want to compliment you on that, and uh, I really want to hear all about the history of it. Well, thank you. Uh like so many things that organically grow into something larger, Christmas Jam started as a very unpretentious opportunity for local musicians to get together and play during the only time of year that we all seem to be in town. Because, uh, as we all know, musicians travel. Everybody's schedule is different. So back in 1988, which is when it started, all the local musicians that were in my circle were talking about like, uh, well, when can we get together and jam and, and play some music and have fun? Well, Christmas holidays. So why don't we schedule something? So we just took over a little club, raised a few thousand dollars, not much, and picked a charity, gave the money to charity. 
uh, it was fun. We did it again the next year. It was a little bigger. Well, so just go- going back, this is Asheville, North Carolina. And the original club, was it Be Here Now or did it go back before Be Here Now? It went back before. There was a club called 45 Cherry Street, which is no longer there. We did it there for a few years, and then it moved to Be Here Now, which is no longer there. (laughs) One year at at Be Here Now, Derek Trucks' guitar got stolen out of the dressing room. This is at a time when it was already starting to get a little too large for the club scene because some of my uh, more well-known friends like Derek and Alan Woody and Kevin Kenny, people like that would show up the last year at Be Here Now, the security was a, a nightmare. There were more people we didn't know in the dressing rooms than there were musicians. And when Derek's guitar got stolen, uh, my wife Stephanie said, okay, that's it. We're going to move it to a real venue. So we decided to move it to the Thomas Wolf Auditorium, which is still there. Uh, the second year at Thomas Wolf, we turned a couple of thousand people away so we decided, okay, we're going to have to move it to the arena. Uh, and that's where it's, it's been ever since. Now, the good news is uh, the person that stole Derek's guitar returned it. They somehow sobered up or what? I'm not assuming anything, but somebody woke up the next day and thought, oh, what did I do? So they knew somebody that knew my brother. They called my brother, said, uh, this person took Derek's guitar. He feels really bad and wants to give it back. And we just said, no problem. There will be no consequences. Just just give it back, you know. Uh, so that was good. Uh, I don't want to get you off track, but I, I want to fill in some of this. Who were some of these bands in the early years, the very early years, musicians, bands? Who, who were some of these guys and women? There was a band called The Strip. There was a band called uh, Crystal Zoo. There was a band called McBad Brothers, which was uh, Bruce McTaggart, who was a great guitar teacher in the Asheville area, older than me, and and one of the the handful of great guitar teachers when I was growing up. But then there were some folk artists, too, like Ray Sisk and and Larry Rhodes and and singer-songwriters, you know. Uh, We had a, a few jazz musicians joining us. It was a very diverse lineup. But then when people started coming that were a little more well-known than that, like one year uh, Toy Caldwell from the Marshall Tucker Band came, one year Bobby Keys, uh, that plays saxophone in the Rolling Stones, came. He was living in Nashville. He got in his car, drove five hours, and had fun, you know. So it was starting to garner a reputation as going beyond the local thing, you know. And in 88, I was in the Dickie Betts band, but had not joined the Allman Brothers yet. So I was doing well, but not as well as the next year would bring, so to speak. You know, it was just a great opportunity that turned into something beyond what we thought. Every year would get a little better, and every year we'd think about what charity we could give the money to. Once we stumbled on Habitat, it just seemed like the right fit, and we stayed with it. So talk about getting to those bigger venues and some of the bands. You talk about it growing organically. Talk a little bit about that, because now it's an institution. It's become a thing. So how does something like that grow organically and kind of take root in the environment and just kind of last? Well, every year we had to kind of re-examine it because... We never thought of it like, oh, we're going to do this for five years or 10 years or 30 years. We were just kind of taking it a step at a time, like like most things. So at that time, 
I would reach out to people that I was close to and say, hey, I'm going to do this benefit. I'd love for you to be part of it. And it was easy for people to go, oh, yeah, uh, let me check my schedule. And if I can do it, I'll do it. Then the next year and the next year and the next year, you don't want to keep leaning on the same people because they've already helped you out. And although there were a lot of people that, that did come uh, all the time, uh, Dave Schools from Widespread Panic, and I mentioned Kevin Kenny and, and uh, Edwin McCain, people like that uh, were so helpful in, in year after year that I, I felt like I can't keep asking them to do it. But then in a lot of cases, they'd call me and go, so when's Christmas Jam? You know, <laughs> okay, well, I guess you're on board, you know. As it got bigger, I would start just calling, reaching out, branching out, uh, and calling people earlier in the years. As you know, our schedules as musicians change constantly. So if I called someone in March or April and said, what do you think about this week in December? They would either say, well, as of now, it looks good, but check a few months from now in case something interferes, or the, or the opposite. Well, right now I'm booked, but that could change, so check back with me. So some people would think they were booked and that uh, they would make themselves available. It just kind of happened so organically. I, I, I got to put so much of the credit on the shoulders of the musicians and the artists and, and all the volunteers and everybody that, that made it happen because... When you ask people to play for free, it's a big ask, but as musicians, it reminds us all what we started playing for in the first place. We didn't become musicians to make money. Uh, that was the last thing on our minds. And, and if I used to tell people if I wanted to make money, I'd rob banks because for most people, there is no money in the music business. Right. And if you're lucky enough to be successful, then you're easily reminded how lucky we are, how fortunate we are, just not just to be successful, but to do what we love for a living, to take a day out of your life and do what you love to do anyway and turn that somehow into building houses for people that can't afford homes. What could be better than that? Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. We're very much reminded of how fragile the musical ecosystem is right now because we have an industry that is out of work and we have venues that you and I made our careers at. If they don't get help quick, they're, they're going to go away. Yeah. One of the things that I did uh, when you were asking me about different charities and PSAs and stuff, uh, I did a thing for the Beacon Theater, which is for people that don't know, is the venue uh, in New York where I've played 
at this point, probably around 300 times. The Allman Brothers played 200 and something shows there. Government Mule, tons of shows. Phil Lesh and Friends, tons of shows. It's like the home venue up here for us. Uh, again, one of those venues that if things don't go right, you know, the, the venue itself or the employees and the staff and everybody uh, could be left out in the cold. And it's weird. Normally when there's a crisis in our lives, we feel like we're uniquely affected by it. But this is the first time in my lifetime that everybody's going through the same thing in, in one way or another. And so we have to remind ourselves it, it's not just me. It's the whole world is facing this crisis. You know? Warren, it's like uh, we all have our challenges, right? Everyday challenges. But whatever was hard in your life before this has become tremendously more difficult no matter what it was. And so if you're one of these people that were on the verge of homelessness, you're homeless. The people on the edge of society, they're the ones that are, are feeling this the most deeply right now. And then as time goes on, you know, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's why we need to help each other because we're never too far away from that worst case situation. Yeah. Uh, from the beginning of this whole thing, my fear was that between the health crisis and the financial crisis, so many people would be destitute that our entire system would be forced into uh, some kind of warp change. And, and that could still happen if everybody doesn't deal with it smartly and properly. There's hope on the horizon, but when I see people, as you mentioned, that we're already on the verge, you know, those people's lives are destroyed unless unless the government and individuals do things to help them out. You know? So, Warren, we have an election coming up, and uh, I think it, we're 60-some days away, 65 days away. We've said, and I think you've probably thought this, uh, I know I have, that every election, I think, man, this is the most important election in our history. And we were probably right every time, because elections are important, but man... If this one doesn't feel like Western civilization is on the line here, the, our democracy is on the line. We talk about people that are on the verge of homelessness or starvation. And so you have never shied away from working towards political causes. Have you ever experienced any backlash in your fan base for any position you've taken? I've never noticed a significant backlash. Uh, if I paid more attention to social media, which I, I don't, I would probably see individuals that complain, which is a little bizarre in the way that if somebody's really paying attention to what I've said and, and the music that I've written and recorded for the past 30 years, I've made it very obvious where I stand. And so if someone is surprised at this point, and they say, oh, I've been a fan for decades, but, but no longer. Well, what took you so long? <laughs> because, you know, I, I haven't changed. I, I, I've pretty much vocalized my opinion the entire time. Uh, at, at the same time, most of, most of my expression politically has been through songwriting. And so, as you know, a lot of people, when they listen to music, they're not really paying attention to the message behind the lyrics. If they're grooving on what's happening, it might take them 26 times to know that, oh, this song has uh, political connotations, you know. But, I mean, 
my band Government Mule, you know, our first album was a, a mule draped in an American flag, and the the song Mule was Where's My Mule, Where's My Forty Acres? Uh, you know, I mean, we we've talked about this, and I've talked about it for a long, long time. People have a way of if they're on the other side of saying, well, why don't you just shut up and, and not get political? Well, but if I agreed with you, you would want me to get political. It's just if I disagree with you that you don't want me to get political. You know, and you and I both have uh, unique perspectives because being North Carolinians uh, or Southerners, we see the whole gamut. You know, I have friends that I grew up with that are hardcore on both sides. And this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt like disagreeing with someone politically could challenge or destroy your friendship. Yeah, I talked to some friends. I have a friend who is a high school history teacher, and he's seen situations, and he is not in a southern state, but he's seen situations where the divide is hitting principals versus teachers, school board members versus other people in the county. And he did an assignment where he had his students read an article from Politico and answer questions. The article pointed out some failings of the current president. And he had students who said, this is fake news. This is fake news. And they're they're teenagers, you know. And anyway, uh, it is a a challenging time for sure. What are you doing for the election? Have you thought about ways that you could help out and make people aware of how to vote, how to plan for their vote? Headcount. I'm, I'm involved with Headcount, which helps register people and raise voter awareness and, and stuff like that. Uh, and my wife is on the board of, of Headcount. I think that's the one area that nobody should be able to argue with is voting. Everybody should vote. Uh, and I personally feel like it should be like in Australia. It should be mandatory. You have to vote. And if you don't, you pay a fine. That's the way I feel about it. And I think that would help raise people's awareness of what's actually going on. Because if you're going to pay a fine, if you don't vote, then you might pay more attention to what's really going on and not just uh, just go with, you know, the trend. I, I think voter registration should be automatic. It is in so many countries. Why, why is it not here? But I think we just have to do everything we can to make sure that everybody has access to vote, knows how to go about registering, how to go about voting. And that shouldn't be something that either party should argue about. Warren, you've had an incredibly successful career. You played with Dickie Betts, and that led you into the Allman Brothers at an incredible moment in their history. And you kind of played a pivotal role, I think, in this next chapter of the band's life, one of the most iconic American bands that's ever existed. And then you've gone on to have this flourishing solo career in Government Mule and all that. Can you just talk about what it was like for you in that time being with Dickie Betts and transitioning to the Allman Brothers and that first album you guys did together? I started playing with Dickie Betts somewhere around 86, 87, and it was coincidentally at the same time when I was just starting to shop my music to make a a solo album. I just hired my first manager and was getting very serious uh, about uh, being an artist. And 
I got a call from Dickie about joining his band, and I was such a big fan that I knew that it was going to delay my solo project a little bit, but it was something that I didn't want to turn down. And so uh, I, I started working with him. In 1988, we made his solo record uh, called Pattern Disruptive. We did a tour, and then I thought, well, okay, now it's time for me to get back to uh, my solo project. And a few months later, they called and said, we're reforming the Allman Brothers, and we'd like you to join. Now, this sounds a little weird, but that was a complete shock to me because every time it was ever brought up about an Allman Brothers reunion, they always said, no, that's never going to happen. And so I just took them at their word, and I never, ever thought one of these days there's going to be an Allman Brothers reunion. I definitely never thought I'm going to be included. Uh, I was completely shocked when they called me. The other side of the coin was, okay, now I got to delay my solo project yet again, but for the greatest of all reasons, to join this band. This is one of my favorite bands of all times. I always told people that if I were going to join a band that I grew up listening to, the Allman Brothers would be at the top of the list. And I'm sure that the reason that I was qualified for that position has a lot to do with my love of, and respect for that music. Uh, how much I studied it, revered it. So I joined for the 20th anniversary reunion tour, thinking it was going to be one year, and then I would go back to what I was doing. It was very successful, but more importantly, the music was wonderful in a way that it hadn't been for quite a while, and everybody was getting along better than they had in a long time. And so I found myself in, in this situation where, hey, let's do it again. Next year. Oh, that was good. Let's go to do it again next year. So the next few years were just uh, touch and go. They were just a step at a time. And since I had written songs for Greg and I had written songs for Dickie, I was kind of accepted as a, a songwriter, as a singer, and they uh, let me be part of uh, the whole arrangement process. It was such a different concept than most of the bands you would join as a younger member. Most of them would have the old guys and the new guys and a big wall in between. And the Allman Brothers wasn't like that. They knew that in order for the music to be anywhere near what it was in 69, 70, and 71, that it had to be a real band again. And they had to have the real guys that would stick their necks out there and say, no, this is what I think. And, and so I attribute a lot of, of the success to bringing in the right people, but also having the right open mind and being able to say, uh, we're going to make this happen. But the first thing we had to do was get back to the roots, get back to the Dwayne Allman, Barry Oakley era. And if we could go there, the sky was the limit. And you truly did. Uh, that period of you and that carried them through to the end of, of the career. It was just amazing, um, amazing music. I, I saw all you guys many times. And like you said, every year, every summer, you guys would come around and it was a must see, you know? Well, you, you know, it's funny because uh, some of us, including myself, felt like maybe we should take a year off here and there or a, a summer off here and there. But part of the reason that we didn't do that was because some of the original members were so, I don't want to say scared, but so concerned that every year was the last year. So they didn't want to stop it because 
their history had shown that we were already pushing our luck. The the band usually stayed together two or three years and then broke up. So the fact that it stayed together from 89 to 2014 is quite amazing. Yeah, truly. And, and you know, Warren, maybe after this year, none of us will ever say, let's take a year off again. You know, good point. <laughs> I think I just took as much time off as I need to for a long time. Yeah, we're done for a while. We'll be back at it as soon as, as we get the, the all clear. Warren, thank you so much for being here. And this has been a real special uh, conversation for me. And, and I really appreciate it. I wish you and your family the best of health. And I can't wait to see you in person. Thanks. It was wonderful. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Politics of Truth.